This is Usable, a Quartz creative podcast that profiles the creators that are applying user-first design to reinvent how we experience the world. On this episode, Ricardo Bilton talks to Matt Leacock, creator of the board game Pandemic, about how user-first design helps him create board games that are easy to enjoy, but hard to win. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. For people who don't know the game, how do you actually play Pandemic? So Pandemic's a cooperative game where all the players are actually working together against the game. And all the players basically take on the roles of scientists and researchers and you know, basically people who are trying to understand disease and fight disease. So you travel the globe fighting four deadly viruses that are breaking out across the world. And you try to keep the disease in check to buy enough time to find the four cures. And if you can find the cures to the four diseases before the world erupts in uh, chaos, then you win. If, however, you're not able to, then basically humanity is finished and it's all your fault. I think what's so amazing about this game is how successful it's been. It's definitely crossed into the mainstream to an extent that very few indie games of its kind have. What is it about the game that you think has given it that kind of like? I think Pandemic was successful because it checked a lot of boxes sort of at the right time. There weren't many mainstream Actually, there weren't really any mainstream cooperative games out on the market at the time. And Pandemic came along and was fairly straightforward to teach, easier than many hobby games, at a pretty good play length and uh, had a lot of engagement. I mean, it really kind of scares the players as they're playing. It draws them in, creates a lot of anxiety, and then pretty easy to learn. And it broke through and showed people what a cooperative game could be. Was the cooperative nature of it unique at the time? You know, my experience with board games for the most part has been you're competing against each other. And I noticed that people, when you tell them that, you know, so we're, no, we're, we're going to work together, they tend to get a lot more excited. Yeah, when I was working, I got a lot of pushback. I think people didn't think that a cooperative game could be successful. But it's important to say it was not unique. There was a game that came out in 2000 called Lord of the Rings by Reiner Knizia that was quite good. And other games, Shadows Over Camelot and others that were cooperative games and they worked. They just didn't kind of bring all the elements together, I think, in, in an effective package. Where did the idea for Pandemic come from? Yeah, I had played Lord of the Rings and I was like, wow, the cooperative games can be something that's engaging and not just, you know, a way for teaching kids how to share and care, right? I thought they were just educational experiences. I wanted to create something like it. Specifically, I wanted to create something like it to play with my wife and family. Because we noticed that when we played co-op games, we felt good whether we, you know, won or lost. But yeah, over three years of development, the game saw a lot of, uh, a lot of iteration and change. You might win the game and then feel terrible because you've, <laughs> you've strained your interpersonal relationships. That was really the reason behind it. When you first created this and shared it with your wife, how did that first playthrough go? I played it a few times by myself and just kind of got myself hooked. I still have the sketch, actually. I drew it out very quickly after I walked with my daughter. I, I just had a lot of ideas in my head and I just want to get them down. So I sketched it using a Sharpie marker on some newsprint. I've still got the sketches and it's got ideas for some of the mechanisms on there. Some of those held through and others were dropped. What hooked me early on was finding the mechanism for making the world increasingly nasty. And I saw how that could kind of like be the core of the game and I could build out from that. Shared it with friends and family. And yeah, it worked. I mean, it resonated with people. It took a little while though. I mean, I stumbled over myself for quite some time before I had a clean design. But I think very early on, we saw that there was a potential for the thing. The idea of iteration is obviously very central to thinking about design and UX in general. And that's a big part of why we wanted to talk to you for this show is because you have a background in UX. So you've worked at Apple, AOL, 
Netscape. And I'm very interested in how these ideas are cross-pollinated, whether or not you're learning stuff as a designer that influences the game creation and also vice versa, whether or not the way you approach game design influences how you are designing you know, digital experience. Yeah, there's a huge amount of crossover. In fact, I tested uh, early versions of Pandemic at Yahoo, where I was at the time when I was developing it. So I'd bring it in at lunchtime and there's a Yahoo game club that meet every Monday. And I remember vividly some of the experiences testing the game with fellow designers and design researchers and really being encouraged to use our toolkit that we use for UX on the game. I'll give you an example. I had the game out on the table and they were playing it and I watched them play and then they would inevitably screw up a rule or something like that. And I would go up over to them and teach them the right way to play. And I was continually interrupting them to tell them how to play the game correctly. And one of the design researchers stopped me and said, you know what, you, you really have to stop doing that. I want you to just sit in the corner and shut up and let us play the game. <laughs> so, uh, because I mean, that's basically what you do when you're doing uh, design research, you're observing and making notes and, you know, I can't ship myself in the game. So I did that and really struggled as they continually made mistakes and the game kind of went off the rails. But as a result of that, I realized that the game was too complex in certain ways and had to retool it. So I took that to heart. And now I do a lot of blind testing, things that we did using some of the remote testing methods that I used when I was working on software and user experience. I'd love to dig deeper into the design process, the testing process. Before that, I want to start sort of big picture and talk about your philosophy on, on design and game design in general. I mean, do you have an overarching philosophy on design as it relates to board games? So I'm usually thinking about how do you design a game? And I formalized my thinking around a lot of it. And I have a process I go through, you know, step by step and a series of checkpoints. So I feel most comfortable when I know, okay, I know what this game is about. And it's about trying to scratch this particular kind of itch. And, and how, you know, how does it go about doing that? But if I can understand that and it's got a really solid core to it, then development is much more straightforward. It's a, it's a matter of trying to figure out, okay, what are all the different things in the design that support that core idea? and really flesh it out and, and which ones get in the way or superfluous because I just want to cut those out. I mean, when I'm done, I, what I'd love is for people to look at it and go, it looks like someone just discovered this game, but like, it wasn't designed, it wasn't written, it was just there. And, you know, I brushed it off and polished it up and, and put it out there. And I was looking for these like games that feel pure in that regard. Where do you start when you have an idea for a game? Do you start with the story, the concept of the game? You know, obviously Pandemic has a very specific aesthetic, but you could also have like a gameplay mechanic. Does that change depending on the game? Or I mean, where do you usually start when you're developing something new? Yeah, you know, it's all over the board. I and mean, sometimes I've got a real itch to explore some sort of new mechanism. But it's important for me to say that it's generally thought of when I'm thinking about exploring a mechanism, I usually think of it in terms of some sort of thematic story or explanation. I don't get excited about just saying, oh, wow, there's this new mechanism. Let's see what can happen with that. They usually come in couplets. So I don't really get started on anything until I have that pairing, some way to play the game and uh, some reason to do so. I generally start in a, a notebook and I'll write down sometimes just a dumb placeholder name and then a, a loose idea of what I'm trying to accomplish with it, you know, who it's for, how long it would take. I'm also find that, you know, having a lot of constraints can actually really help the creative process. If I'm given a blank page, it's really hard for me to go anywhere with that. The more boxed in I am, <laughs> I tend to do a little bit better. Starting with those first drafts, you need a board to start with. What is that first board made out of? Take Pandemic, for an example. That was a 12 by 16 sheet of newsprint sketched out with a Sharpie. And it was just a series of nodes and lines. 
uh, I knew it to represent the map of the world, but I knew I could make it look like the world later. So it's just kind of a, a rough graph of lots of circles and, and lines. And I, I jotted down uh, the different uh, ranks of poker deck. So there's like queen, ace, king, you know, one through 10 next to all these circles. And I was experimenting with a regular deck of cards, again, just so I could kind of figure out what that central game was. But the board itself looked like a piece of garbage. No one else would <laughs> would know what that was. <laughs> you still have it? You know what? It's actually traveling around England right now in a traveling exhibition. The V&A Museum of Childhood had it under glass for a couple of years. So I'm honored that they're, they've got a traveling exhibition for it. So they're showing that thing off. When do you go from that garbage version of the board to one that's a bit more official and real? So I moved from the scratch paper into Adobe Illustrator relatively soon. There's this inflection point where I found a core game, like I found the central idea, then I'm okay going digital. But before I've done that, I really hesitate to invest in doing any kind of like digital illustration because I fear that I'm going to get too attached to it because it'll look more polished than the concepts are. So once I've got that thing figured out, and ideally, you know, I'll find it within a few days or even a few hours, and then I, I might even move that quickly into Adobe Illustrator. The advantage there is I can iterate based on previous versions. It's really, really tempting to design entire games, you know, like in a spreadsheet and in a specification in Adobe Illustrator, you know, like make them really polished and then print them out. And then you get this this whole big game and you start to play it. And you have, you know, no idea what you're doing and it's all broken and you've invested all this time. So I found over the years that it's better just to experiment. I find that, you know, I'll have these big theories as to how the game should work, but it's only when I start operating it and, and working with it that I can actually see how it is working. So I really have to actively fight not to develop robust prototypes and basically just start with a lot of play. So I did want to talk about your testing process. How does that work? You mentioned that you're constantly responding to how people are actually playing. Where do you start with the actual testing process for the games? Yeah, it's like a I don't know, you can imagine a target or a, a set of uh, concentric circles where in the very beginning, it's me and I'm sitting at the table and I've got some parts lying around and some sketches and I really don't even know what the game is. And I'm goofing off and making notes. And But I'm testing. I'm trying out some hypotheses about you know, like how, how a game might work and then seeing if they hold up at all and trying to find the fun and discover what the core of the game is. Once I've got that core game designed, it's a matter of kind of fleshing it out and figuring out where the... I don't know where the edges of the game are, like better defining what the space of it is. And at this point, I'm still probably playing it by myself. And then gradually that gets a little bit wider and wider to the point where I can define a single complete session. Like here's how the game is set up. Here's how it plays. Here's how you know when you won or how a game terminates. At that point, when I can describe those three things, I can start adding people. It's very difficult to do those earlier stages with other people frankly, because I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it's really hard to communicate anything to the other person. But once I, I, I can find that full thing, then I start bringing in people. And then, and then the game gradually expands. I'll bring in family and friends and trusted colleagues. And I'm in the room. First, I'm playing the game with them. And then I'm just watching them play. And I'm just taking notes on the side. Before too long, I'll have something where I can write up a, a complete rule book and assemble a complete prototype. And at that point, I can ship it off to people Usually first testers are people that I know that I've tested with in the past and they'll uh, play the game on camera and I'll watch the play session and I've got a coding method. I just bring up Google Drive and a spreadsheet and note all the different observations and issues and design ideas as, as I'm watching them play. 
And then the last step is is mailing out to people that I really don't know, you know friends of friends, or um, I'll do uh, sometimes I'll even do blind recruits off Twitter. And you know, so each each successive phase, the fidelity of the prototype gets higher and higher, and the interpersonal connection <laughs> between myself and the the tester gets weaker and weaker until at the end I've got something that's fairly polished that I can hand a, a stranger off the street and expect that they'd be able to, to learn it. So when you look at those video recordings, people playing, what are you looking for? Are there, I'm always curious if there are visual signs of, you know, how do you know if someone's having fun by looking at them play a board game? Right. Cooperative games are a lot easier than competitive games, I've found, because people are always talking. And so you get a much clearer picture. It's like a think aloud protocol that you get from user experience design, where you're asking people to kind of talk about what they're thinking as they're doing it. Here it is just in a cooperative game, it's really natural. People are always talking about what they observe and what they think, what their theories are, how they, how they best should work together. So that's a natural fit for this kind of testing. Competitive games work though as well, although generally you're going to have less communication. Sometimes people are just kind of like staring at the game and not saying anything. But you can look at their behaviors. You know, are they leaning in? Uh, are they leaning away from the table? God forbid, are they looking at their phone? So I'm looking for a lot of those cues. I'm also looking to see, uh, you know, are there, are there points of confusion? Have they brought the rule book out to check on something? You know, if so, what is that? Because maybe I didn't get it right the first time. I also jot down issues, you know, if a certain strategy is um, overpowering, there's something that's imbalanced. I note down play errors or even strategy errors just to get a better sense of how the players are playing. Bugs uh, that need to be fixed for the next round. And then these invariably bring up design ideas. And it's important to jot those down and and tag them as ideas and not issues. So I try to keep it straight. You know, what have I actually observed? And what are the ideas that come out of those observations? Have you ever had an idea for a game that you thought was, you know, this is a great idea. I think people are going to love this. Then you started testing it and you you worked on it and you realized it didn't work the way you thought it would? Yeah, all the time. There's one game in particular that comes to mind. I did a lot of research on ant colonies and thought it'd be really exciting and fascinating to do a, a game where you modeled an ant colony because they're use social animals. It'd be this great experience. And they, there's all these behaviors you could model. And I've just been pounding my head against the wall for, I don't know, like 10, 10 plus years on that game. And every couple of years I bring it out. And every couple of years, it's not good enough. So I put it back on the shelf. Do you have any insight into why that is in, in terms of why it didn't work? Sometimes you find a, a core game that really excites you. And other times it's just kind of pedestrian. And what I ended up having each time was sort of a fairly derivative game that didn't excite me. And until I can put it down on the table and really get excited about explaining it to people and about watching them play it. I really don't want to work on a game. So sometimes you, you pull a prototype off the shelf and it's just not, it's just not doing it. So you have to put it back. Right. I almost wonder when I'm playing something and I'm not enjoying it, I'm always interested in the question of like, why isn't this fun for me? And there's on one hand, you can sort of say like fun is subjective, right? What's fun to one person might not be fun to someone else. But I also I'm curious from your perspective, if there's a more objective way to say, okay, what makes something fun or something enjoyable? I think there's a lot of different kinds of fun. You can enjoy being together socially. You can enjoy creative problem solving together. You can enjoy being creative. I've got all sorts of different games that each scratch a different type of itch. For me, the important thing is trying to, you know, when I'm designing, understand exactly what the game is trying to accomplish. And is it delivering one of those, at least one of those kinds of fun for people who like that sort of thing? So I don't, I don't necessarily try to design games that are for everybody. I mean, some people really like to be super competitive and, and a lot of my games just aren't for them. Other people really get lost in fantasy games and love the storytelling aspects. Um, I, I enjoy that as well. And I don't consider that a really big strength of mine, but it's interesting to see you know, what people 
can draw out of various different kind of genres of games. What about the idea of winning and how that, that factors? And I think what's so fascinating about Pandemic is that it's designed so that you don't win, you know, some of the time or even, even most of the time, which is from an abstract level might seem like something that would be very unenjoyable to be constantly losing, but it seems like this game is built with that idea in mind and actually contributes to the enjoyment of playing it. Yeah, I think that's a, a misconception that, you know, people play games to win. I think people really want to be, play games so that they're challenged and they get enjoyment from that challenge. I mean, you get in kind of a flow state where the challenge isn't so big that it's insurmountable and you build with anxiety and it's not so low that you're just kind of bored. So in the same way that when you play a chess game, you don't want a grandmaster playing a beginner because it's no fun for either of them. You want to be playing a cooperative game where the the win is just out of reach. Or if you do reach it, you know, it was a Herculean struggle and you managed to pull it off at the 11th hour. One of the surprises for me was that people often enjoy their losses more than their wins if they were, you know, really close. Then they just want to try again. They want to play again because maybe next time they're going to they're gonna make it. They're going to win. As the designer of the game, how often are you winning? <laughs> it depends on the difficulty level. Um, I'm pretty good at Pandemic. I played it and its uh, variations um, hundreds of times. Barring some kind of like crazy shuffle, I could probably win the normal setting every time. The heroic one is a little more difficult, but uh, yeah, I don't know what my stats are, but I'm pretty good at the game now. So I want to talk a little bit about the teaching process of this. Many times in learning how to play games like Puerto Rico or Ticket to Ride, it, you know, coming in late, learning how to play that and with someone who's very good at it and played it multiple times. And there's like two levels of stress. There's like the stress of teaching it and there's also the stress of, of learning it and not and feeling like you're not understanding it. How do you approach the way you teach a game, especially, you know, indie games are very complicated. They tend to be, you know, more than your typical, you know, Monopoly or the games that people tend to be most familiar with. Yeah, so for me personally, when I'm teaching a new game, um, I want to make sure that I know how it works before I teach it. Um, there's nothing <laughs> duller and more anxiety-ridden than trying to learn the game from the rules at the same time you're trying to teach it. So that's generally going to be a bad experience for everybody. As the teacher, you're trying to like decode all the rules at the same time, build a model for how the game works, and then trying to encode that into something that your fellow players understand. And it's just not something anybody's going to be successful at. It's a lot easier to teach cooperative games than it is competitive games because you're all on the same side and you can dole out all the critical information ahead of time and then gradually teach information that's less critical as you go, knowing that the people on your team aren't going to feel bad if they don't have that complete model for how the game works. When you're playing a competitive game, they, they need all those details if they want to compete against you. So you have to do a pretty exhaustive explanation so that they know all the nooks and crannies and don't feel cheated when you know you do something that they didn't know that, <laughs> that you could do. Then as a game designer, I, I want to make sure I can facilitate that process as much as possible. So there's a, there's a whole art to that as well. What does that process entail? How do you build this idea, the, the teaching into the design and, and the manual and the box? I mean, there are other elements you can lean into even outside of the game itself. Yeah, I mean, th this is an area that I, I think that my games are, are strong in just because the method I use for d developing them. I, I get a lot of uh, uh, cycles of observation to find out how people are interacting with the material and then you know improve what they're using each time in order to make that process smoother and smoother. But in general, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. One is to try to make the rule book as much as possible obsolete by externalizing all the rules into the game itself. So if you take Pandemic, for example, everyone has a quick reference card, which summarizes maybe 80% of the, the rules. The order of play for the game is on the game board, so you never have to look that up. Whenever an epidemic is pulled, which has got a very specific 
three-step process. The card has the steps printed on it. So you just read the card and you know what to do. So in your role has a summary of all of its abilities that are optimized for scanning and, and uh, reference so that you can very quickly remind yourself what your powers are and don't feel like you have to slog through a, you know, a wall of text. If I'm doing my job right, anybody playing the game won't have to refer back to the rulebook uh, as they're playing, which is something I'm always aiming for. When you're developing the rulebook for the person who's learning for the first time, though, there's patterns that have emerged over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of how to write a good rulebook. And some of this stuff is just really obvious, but people forget to do it. Um, like the first step is <laughs> draw a picture of all the components in the game and, and give them names so that you know what's in the box and you know what everything's called. And then when you're choosing those names, uh, come up with very uh, appropriate labels for them, you know, uh, so that players can map those representations into concepts in the real world that they understand so that everything in the game feels obvious. Well, of course it works like that. <laughs> the best way to, to write a good rule book is to get in front of people when you're not in the room, see how they teach it, see the words that they're using to describe everything, and then modify your game to suit. I'm very curious how you explain the overall increased interest in board games. You know, anecdotally, the number of friends that I have that are interested in, in learning how to play or that, you know, do regular board game days, it's constantly going up, which is amazing to me. I mean, what do you owe that to? Obviously, there seems to be an element more broadly of people trying to get away from their screens, go more analog, spend more time, you know, IRL with people. What's your theory on, on what's driving all this interest in board games? Yeah, the growth has been really phenomenal. I mean, it's been like 10 to 15% growth over the past 10 or plus years. Uh, the industry's gotten really big. It's been really fun to watch. Um, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Uh, like you mentioned, I think people are looking to form a connection with other people and um, board games provide this sort of like context where you can sit across the table and interact with someone in a safe kind of way. You know, it's something you can do after dinner, something you can do over drinks. And it's a way to connect with people in real life. I also think that the internet has made it a lot easier to discover other people who like this sort of thing and discover the games. I mean, before you had to go into a game store, if you knew where one was, and pick up a box off the shelf and, and read the back of the box and hope that you had it. <laughs> hope that you picked a good one. And now you can discover all sorts of games online. You can order them online. You can see playthroughs. You can see people open up the box and flip through the game. So it's, le it's less of a mystery. It's less of a shot in the dark to find a good game. And I think the games have gotten a lot better. I think the designers, there's so many products out now. I mean, there's at least a thousand games coming out every year, which has got to be uh, an order of magnitude more than it was at 10 years ago. So uh, you take the best of that crop and you're going you're gonna to see much better play experiences across the table, which I think draws more people in. And I, I guess I'd also say that computer gaming has probably helped people think of games as something that are more socially acceptable. 10, 20 years ago, games were things that were done by kids. But, you know, everybody's got a cell phone in their pocket and those things have mobile games. And so you're used to gaming as something that people do. So playing a board game doesn't seem so exotic anymore. Pulling back from the specifics of board game design, is there something that you've learned from the way you've designed games that you think would be useful for other designers in other spaces outside of games? Well, I think over the years, the thing that I've learned most is that the most important skill that I've got is really having a sense of empathy, watching people and understanding what they're going through, like internalizing that experience and then trying to figure out how I can make it better. So I would just encourage other designers to observe as much as possible and try to put themselves in the shoes of the people playing. And I don't think, I mean, based on the quality of a lot of the games that are out there right now, I don't think that's being done enough. I mean, the rule books for many of these hobby games are, are really pretty bad. And I know that if they had done one single blind test, they would be so much better. So 
I would encourage uh, other designers to really take that to heart and, you know, observe people playing the game without you in the room and, and see how you could make that experience better. Matt, thanks so much for speaking with me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Usable is a Quartz Creative production. Ricardo Bilton and Morgan Chmielewski are our executive producers. Music by George Colazzo. Art design by Shannon Angle. For more information about Quartz Creative, head to creative.qz.com. <laughs>